Hello, everyone. I'm Harvey Brownstone, and today's special guest is a woman whom I've loved and admired since she first appeared as Kim Carter on her legendary mother's wonderful TV show, Here's Lucy. For six seasons, she was America's favorite teenager, singing and dancing not only with her fabulous mom, Lucille Ball, and her brother, Desi Arnaz Jr., but with everyone from Ginger Rogers to Wayne Newton to Donnie Osmond. On the big screen, she won a Golden Globe nomination for her performance opposite Neil Diamond and Sir Lawrence Olivier in The Jazz Singer. She also co-starred in Billy Jack Goes to Washington, Second Thoughts, Down to You, Wild Seven, and the thought-provoking and multi-award winning film Smoking, Non-Smoking. She starred in numerous TV movies, including Who Killed the Black Dahlia, Washington Mistress, the Mating Season, Who Gets the Friends, and Abduction of Innocence. On Broadway, she played the unforgettably wacky Sonia Walsk in their Playing Our Song, which earned her the Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Award, the Theatre World Award, and the Outer Critics Circle Award. She's also starred on Broadway in Lost in Yonkers, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Pippin. She's demonstrated incredible versatility on the stage in dozens of productions ranging from Seesaw to Whose Life Is It Anyway, Vanities, My One and Only, The Witches of Eastwick, and so many great shows. As a vocalist, she dazzled us with her albums entitled Just In Time, Latin Roots, and Lucy Live at Feinstein's at the Nico. And if that weren't enough, She's a spectacular nightclub and concert artist, most recently performing for sellout crowds in her hit show, Lucy Arnaz, I Got the Job, Songs from My Musical Past. In 1993, she won an Emmy Award for her documentary TV special about her parents entitled Lucy and Desi, A Home Movie. In 2001, she got another Emmy nomination for the I Love Lucy 50th anniversary special. And most recently, she appeared in the highly acclaimed, intensely emotional Amazon documentary about her parents entitled Lucy and Desi. I am beyond thrilled to welcome the spectacular Lucy Arnaz to our show. Lucy, thank you so much for being here. Well, first of all, Harvey, I want you to write my biographies for every program from now until the end of time. That was pretty fabulous how you encapsulated everything in that. Thank well, you, you lived it. Well, I did. It was kind of nice to relive it when you were telling me just now. That's pretty cool. That is kind of amazing, I must say. It is. I've been a fan of yours forever. You've had such an incredible career in musical theater. And we all got to watch you developing your singing and dancing skills every week on Here's Lucy. What a great training ground that show was for you. Yeah. I mean, I talk about it in the show that you mentioned, the I Got the Job show, that that was just the most amazing education in theater, musical theater one could hope. And I was planning on going to a college and learning all of that stuff. And I ended up saying yes to that show. I figured, oh, a couple of years, you know, we'll see how it goes. And it was just a tr tremendous training ground. We were glee before there was Glee, I think. All those musicals that we did every single season, like seven or eight big musicals. And if you didn't know how to do something, they just say, well, you will by next week, we're gonna teach you how to do that. You know, how to tap dance, how to do the hula, how to ride a horse with dressage training, you know, I mean, all this stuff. And you just said, okay, and you show up and, and there you have another thing you can slap on your 
bio, right? Skills, <laughs> dressage. Yeah, it was amazing. And if you watch your progress from season one to season six, it's unbelievable. I, I wondered, did you always know that you wanted to pursue a career on the stage? I kind of knew I wanted to gravitate towards live performing from the time I was about 11. Used to do it in my backyard and in our garage. And then my mom built a little stage there for us. And I chose a high school because it had the best theater department in Los Angeles. And I kind of was on that track. Yeah. And then when my mom sort of threw us a monkey wrench and said, do you want to be on my new series? And I was ready to go to college and I said, no, no, I want to take this seriously and go train. And, you know, she promised that if it didn't work out, she would quickly write us out of the show and I could continue on and go to college. But I'm glad I said, yes, it scared me because I knew everybody would say what they say. You know, the only reason she got that job is because her mother was a star of the show and they would be correct. <laughs> well, they were correct. But, uh, yes. but after about six or seven episodes, yeah. uh, uh, people forgot that you were her real daughter because you really demonstrated incredible versatility and musical talent. Uh, I just wonder, Thank you. do you remember the moment when you first realized, when you said to yourself, I really do have the talent to have a successful career in show business? Well, God, no, I would never say that to myself. I mean, that just seems like an enormous ego statement to say something, you know, like you're really not very humble. No, I can say that this was my joy, my bliss and I would cross my fingers and hope to God that I could make a living doing what I love to do. And I've been so fortunate to actually be able to do that. I mean, mom gave me a springboard and a door opened and we were able to go on that show and learn. And then from there, it was just me after that. And I had to try to keep going, you know, it's like give you a push so you can ride the wave, but you still got to balance and try not to fall off, you know. What was the best career advice you ever got? No, I don't know that I have an answer for that. That's specifically the only, the best, the best is always hard, but I would say the career advice that I tend to give people now myself, and it must be because it feels like it's what I learned. That's most important is to be yourself is not try to be anybody else, but who you are, not try to sound like somebody else or act like somebody else or be the new you know, flavor of the month, because that's what they're doing. Just find out how you sound and how you would respond to something and what your version of that character would be and come in with as much originality as you can possibly come in with. Don't try to be anybody else. I mean, that's what we were taught to be authentic, I guess is the word to be believable, to be authentic and to work hard and be professional. That's the best advice. And I think a lot of that was through osmosis really watching people who were extraordinarily professional and showed up prepared and they, they weren't problem people. They didn't cause problems for everybody else. That was, that was great to learn just from watching people be that way and say, oh, that's when the show runs smoothly and we get things done. When other people would come on the show and they were the opposite of that, you saw the whole thing tank. You know, it was like, oh, what an awful week that was. But, oh, I see why, because people were not a team. Suddenly there was somebody who was more important than the other person. That's never good. You know, you've appeared on stage with so many great stars, including everyone from Rudy Valley to John Ritter, Stalker Channing, Estelle Parsons, Tommy Toon, and of course, your dear husband, Lawrence Luckenbill. And you've worked with legends like Sir Lawrence Olivier and directors Michael Bennett and Mike Nichols. 
Was it intimidating for you as a young actress to be working with these people? I, I, I don't think so. I think that because my mother was considered and my father considered two of the as big as you can get type of people, you know, in their field that I didn't look at stuff like that. I mean, I had people I wanted to meet. They were usually the Paul Petersons of the world or the, you know, like, like there were crushes and people that I would like, like get embarrassed if I meet them. But I, I kind of instinctively knew from growing up with them that they, all these people were just people, you know, and they had lots of hard work and it took hours and hours for them to do it. And it was just a job. I learned certainly from all of those various people. I mean, I was honored to work with Laurence Olivier. I was honored to be on the same stage with Wayne Newton. I was honored to be doing a tap number or singing a song with Carol Burnett or Frankie Avalon or Liberace, or like you mentioned, it's insane. I think about it. And, and yeah, being directed by Michael Bennett in my very first ever equity show, how lucky is that? And work, getting a chance to work with Mike Nichols, getting a chance you know, to be in four different uh, plays with Tommy Toon, to be taught how to tap dance by Tommy Toon. I mean, the list goes on. I, I've lived a very lucky life, you know? And you've made the most of it. You really developed your talent. We've all grown up with you and seen the progress, the dedication to your craft. Uh, for example, in 2009, you starred in a fascinating and controversial movie called The Pack, which I believe has been renamed Smoking Non-Smoking. Yeah. The film is about a young man who testifies against his mother for killing his father with secondhand smoke. Mm -hmm. The movie premiered at Sundance, won a whole lot of awards. You were fabulous in it. How did you get involved in that project? Alyssa Rollo Bennett, who wrote it and directed it, sent me a script 10 years before we actually filmed it. At 10 years. Imagine it's like getting Gandhi made, which is insane. It's just a small film, you know, but took her forever. And originally she wanted me to play the prosecutor. And I was like, gung ho. Yeah. Yeah. I love this idea. I love this story. And, you know, as a judge, you can kind of imagine what this is a very complicated issue. How, how would you judge that? Is that, is that woman responsible or is she not? It's a great question. And it was a combination of 12 angry men, you know, kind of a jury movie and this incredible subject matter, which is up for debate all the time. And everybody, secondhand smoke, does that really kill you? I mean, should you be held accountable? Blah, blah, blah. By the time she sent me the script again, 10 years later, the prosecutor had been divided into two people. And suddenly it wasn't that great of a part anymore. You know, I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. It's a great movie, but I don't know if I want to do that part. She said, how would you like to play the woman, the smoker? Oh, <laughs> Ooh, the possible bad guy, but maybe not bad. And how do you crawl into her skin? And, and she loved her husband, you know, played by Scott Bryce, brilliantly played by Scott Bryce. And I kind of, you know, just fell madly in love with him too. He's been a friend of mine now since we made that movie in 2005, I guess it was something like that. Anyway, it turned out to be a very interesting and exciting experience to make that film. And it was truly low budget, independent. You know, I wore all my own clothes and did my own makeup and hair. I mean, it was really like, I'm sorry, we have no money for any of that. And we shot almost the entire film at Alyssa's house. So it was my first experience doing something like that. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Yeah, I hope you make more movies like that. I thought you were just terrific. It's fun I, when I, they come along and I can say, yes, I do. Yeah. I want to ask you about Lucy Arnaz, the recording artist. Your first album, Just In Time, 
was a beautiful mix of standards and original songs. And then in 2010, you pay tribute to your dear father, Desi Arnaz, with your album entitled Latin Roots, which gets played a lot in our house. It's my favorite of all your albums. (laughs) Yes. Your dad passed away in 1986. What made you decide 25 years later in 2010 to make the Latin Roots album? I had been trying to do a Latin Roots show for a very long time since I first put my first show together in 1988, which was only a couple of years after. And it really was inspired by the fact that when he passed away, I found tapes of a lot of his original recordings and, and uh, never before heard live you know, radio broadcasts when his band played at the Starlight Room or something like that. And I was so moved by it. I had done tons of theater by 1986, but I just wanted to be a gal singer in front of a band with arrangements that good, a band that sounded that good. And I kind of just thought about it a lot. I didn't do anything. I just put it out there. And I got a call to put a show together for Italy about Irving Berlin. And the next thing I knew, I had met this wonderful musical arranger and um, orchestrator, Ron Abel. And he agreed to try to do this with me. And all my agents and managers said, no, 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 don't do it. So I started doing a nightclub act. And then I was 20 years later, I'm still doing it, you know, and I got, a, I got into a conversation at one of the Ira Gershwin shows we did in New York at the 92nd Street Y Lyric and Lyricist series. And the girl who runs it, Deborah Grace Weiner said, whatever happened to your father's arrangements for Desi Arnaz Orca? I said, oh God, I had them for years and years and years. But then I gave them to the Library of Congress because Michael Feinstein said they take those kinds of things. And she said, wouldn't it be fun to do a, a tribute to Latin music seen through the eyes of the Desi Arnaz Orchestra? Because if it wasn't for his music, especially on TV, the Latin craze may never have taken off when it did. I thought that's very true. And then Ron Abel, who was still my musical director, and I said, you know, we've been talking about doing a celebration of Latin music for how many years, 10 years, 12 years now? How about we finally do this CD and get it out there at the same time we're going to do this show about my dad's music, which was called Babalu, but it was all his music. It wasn't any of our arrangements. It was all his charts. And we did that in New York. We did it in Florida and we did it for the Library of Congress and they taped it for all posterity. You can go there and watch it. And I got that CD out in time for all of those performances. So suddenly it was a a reason to put the pedal to the metal, you know, and and make it happen. And I'm so glad I did. Then I started touring my Latin Roots show because the Babalu show was, it was 16 pieces, which wasn't the problem, but there was a a part for like Raul Esparza was singing my father's music and Valerie Pettiford was another girl singer. There were two dancers, me, my brother, another percussion. It was a lot to travel with. And so I did like a hybrid thing where I sort of combined the numbers from the Babalu show that I could actually take on, as well as some of my favorite moments from the Latin Roots CD. And that's now my Latin Roots show, my concert. And it's a big band show that I do around the countries as often as possible. But since the pandemic, a lot of theaters haven't quite gotten the budget back together yet to afford the bigger shows. So I'm looking forward to doing it again as soon as I can. Oh, I think it's going to happen. And I hope you bring it to Toronto because we all want to see you here again. I would love to play Toronto again. Is it fair to say that your Cuban heritage plays a big part in your musical choices as a recording artist and a performer? I don't know if it's exactly my, my, my Cuban heritage, my Latin heritage, I think certainly the heritage of being the daughter of a guy who so appreciated great music 
and the American songbook music and Latin music or, or he did a lot of American songs, but he put that Latin swing into it, a Latin feel that has always got me going. I mean, I can't sit still when I hear any song done with a mambo, samba, cha-cha, you know, salsa kind of a feel to it. So it does influence some of the things that I love, the types of arrangements I love sometimes. And yeah, you know, I'm 50% Latin. So I guess it's in my bones. It sure is. And it's in the voice. In, in 2018, you finally released a live album recorded at Feinstein's at the Nico Hotel in San Francisco. And it's just the quintessential Lucy Arnaz experience with just you and the fabulous Ron Abel at the piano. Great songs, wonderful anecdotes from your life and career. So I got to ask you this. Is there any chance you will ever produce a DVD of that concert? No, probably not. Um, probably not. I mean, I'm going to move forward and we're doing a live album at the Purple Room from all of the times I've just, just finished the fifth performance there. We did three in early March and it was sold out and they had a lot of other people couldn't get in. So he asked me to do two more over Memorial Day weekend, which I did and that sold out. So we taped, we audio taped all of those. And I'm going to, you know, take the best moments from all of those various shows and put out a Lucy live from the Purple Room because it's an entirely different show than the one that was the Feinsteins. I mean, they made a, a tape that night, an audio, I mean, a videotape that night, but it's kind of a one camera from the back. And it's not really, I don't think that's what I want to put out, but I appreciate you asking. I think it's good too, that people want to come see you in the show. If they had a video of it, they might not want to come see it live. You know what I'm saying? Well, then you're going to have to tour a lot because everybody wants to see you. You know, two years of not being able to tour at all is a, a nice vacation, but not really for me. I mean, I didn't need a vacation. Thank you. Work is my vacation. So now we're crawling back to about a normal rate. And I'm starting to book a lot of these shows back again. You know, so when I'm able, I love being out there doing these shows. And it shows. Now, many people may not be aware that you've given a lot of lectures and speeches throughout the years. I attended a speech you gave in Toronto a few years ago called From Lucy to Lucy, which was a real highlight for me. You were just amazing. Thank you. Uh, one of your most popular speeches is entitled Surviving Success, which is available on CD through your website, lucyarnaz.com. What made you want to share the difficult lessons you learned trying to successfully balance a family and a career? I think I just wish that somebody had told me those things, you know, when I was starting to be a parent. I had to learn it the hard way by having things go wrong and end up talking to child psychologists and marriage counselors. And then I put the pieces together and went, oh man, you know, sometimes you try to auto-correct from things that you'd like to do differently than how you were raised, because parents do the best they can with what they know, where they are, you know, they just, we all do the best we can. But as you grow up and you have your own kids, you say, well, you know what, I'm going to try to be there more often. And I'm going to be the one who does, I'm not going to let blah, blah, blah. But I, I didn't do it right. I didn't, I didn't know that I still had to do A, B, and C. So once I sort of figured it out and it started to work better for me, parenting started to work better and the balance between my life, my work and my parenting, and this including Larry and my husband, Larry Luckenbill on this too, I just thought, God, this is such valuable information and nobody tells you this. Nobody teaches you any of this stuff in school. I mean, where do you, 
you just got to fly blind as a parent and, and hope that what you learned by growing up in your family is good enough and, and helps you with, and, but your situation is always different. You know, your, your husband's going to be different. The situation where you live, what you do is work. So I just enjoy sharing it. And it's, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's specific, you know? Well, something really fundamentally sound must have happened in the way you were raised because your reputation in this industry is that you have consistently been a consummate professional. You have no ego. You're incredibly kind to people. Something worked right. All those things that you mentioned describe my folks, both of them, professional, virtually no ego and very kind to everybody. Not always kind to each other, but you know, marriage is rough. But but they loved each other till the day they died, as you saw by watching the documentary. I mean, that's the best thing you can give your kids. The rest of it kind of gets screwed up no matter how hard you try. <laughs> right? I mean, and and two working parents, that's hard. I mean, even if they're not celebrities, that's just really hard on kids. And so that's the balance is that you have how do you get your kids to know that they're worthy of love? So that they grow up with a sense of self that gets them through. How do you do that? How do you make sure you spent the right kind of time with them that makes that happen? That's, that's the thing. And it's not something anybody ever taught us. And certainly my parents didn't grow up that way. But we have more professionals now who understand it and can help you with that. And, and so once you, you learn that there's a better way, you want to take it. you know. But yes, I was very fortunate that I didn't have any crazy abuse and nutsy things that could have gone on in our household. No, 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 no. none of that. None of that. We, we were a very loving family. And as, as parents and actors and business people, they were incredibly professional and very kind to, to the people who worked with them and to the people who, who were their fans, you know, and I saw that and that's, you can't be any different than that. That's what we're taught. That's I, I knew that was the way to be. And I'm not happy if I'm not like that, I mean, if I get into a play or a film or something and I'm surrounded by people who are just not nice to other people, and that has happened, unfortunately, a few too many times, it's the worst experience of your life. You know, it's like you just think of that whole event and you just want to cringe like, Ugh, like I don't want to ever do that again. It makes it miserable. I love show business too much to make it not fun and kind, you know. Well, I love that you carry on that legacy. You mentioned the documentary, the fabulous Amy Poehler documentary. It was jaw-droppingly superb. And I found myself crying a lot because these people who just wanted to find a way to work together so they could be together and raise a family found huge success, but they couldn't make the marriage a lasting success. That was just so heartbreaking. Did you expect the documentary to be as heart-wrenching as it was? Yeah. <laughs> Because I know the story. Yeah. And I made my own documentary, right? Back in 1993. And I actually started in 1990. And I know that if you tell it right and you show the right images and you talk talk the truth, it's heart-wrenching. It's a, a wonderful story, a very sad story, but an unfortunate story and a very and a wonderful story and an inspiring story. It's a terrific tale. It's a terrific tale. And I opened up all of my vaults and my heart and my mind to Amy and their team, wonderful team, White Horse Pictures and Imagine Entertainment. 
and said, look, I trust you. I've had enough meetings with all of you to, to make my decision that you're good people and you're smart and your head's in the right spot and you're not trying to do a just a, a one-sided trash thing or a tribute thing. Neither one of those needs to be done. But if you want to walk the middle line and tell the truth with heart, with compassion, then I will give you everything I've got. And I did, and they did. They told the most beautiful story. Do you think your parents would have approved of the documentary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they approved of the one we did before. Anything that tells the truth about what they struggled with and shows the love they had for one another and what great people they were as actors and as human beings, I mean, what's not to love? I think it's okay to show warts. And I mean, I got tons of them. And I someday, if I write a book, I'm going to show you all the warts along with what I think is right, because you're not human if you're not telling the truth. And there's nobody out there that's perfect or does it 100% right. And nobody wants to read a book that's fantasy. So, you know, it's like, and you don't want to take away their image of these beautiful people from I Love Lucy or the movies they've seen them in and say, oh, they had troubles or they were dark or he drank or she screamed or they're whatever. You, you don't, you don't need to do that. You just need to say, yeah, they had challenges and it was about this. And you know, the thing I love is getting to the why. Why? That's interesting. Why? Why did that happen? The things that have been written or have been shown on screen that don't get to the why have no compassion. And, and it's not interesting to me. Then it's just a tabloid piece. And there's no reason to, to do that to people that you admire. You say you admire them and then you go and you kind of trash them in that way. It's not right, you know? Exactly. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize that you were only six or seven years old when I Love Lucy went off the air. So for you to get to know who your parents were during that time in their lives, you had to do your own research, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. And I mean, I had to go back and interview people who grew up with them. I was curious about what they were like as, as kids and people who worked with them early, early on in their career and who worked with them at Desilu Studios and who worked with them later in life and you know, their cousins. And, and I did an extensive interview process. It was hundreds of hours. And because I didn't have any answers, I didn't have any set answers. I didn't have an agenda. Oh, here's what I'm going to prove. It wasn't that. It was, how come I'm the way I am? I wonder if mom was happy when she was a kid. I wonder if dad had, you know, questions you never thought to ask them because you didn't. It was a different generation. Plus they were kind of busy. And so could you sit down for a minute? I want to talk to you about your life, but you don't get those questions until you're in your forties, until you're a parent yourself. That's when you start asking these things and it's usually too late, you know, then they're not always around or if they are, they don't remember or whatever, you know? So I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a cathartic journey to, to make that film for myself. Now you've done so much. You've had a lot of job satisfaction throughout your career, are you having the career that you envisioned for yourself all those years ago when you were starting out? I had no vision for a career when I started out, none whatsoever. All I wanted to do was keep doing what I was doing. And I just put one foot in front of the other. And I was lucky because people would come up with, you know, how about this? Or, or you could go do this. Oh, hmm. well, I think I tried to do that. And it just kind of went like that. And I'm just fortunate to have the, I would never have imagined in a million years, if you had said to me back then, and I could have a magic, you know, crystal ball, and I could say, what's my career going to be like? Who am I going to work with? What am I going to do in a million trillion 
years, I would never have guessed what you just said at the beginning of this show. It's so above and beyond anything that I could have imagined for myself. Do you have any interest in writing a memoir? Yes, yes, and I hope to do so. I've been sort of organizing. You know, it's like if you're going to redecorate your house, first you have to throw out a lot of stuff you don't want, and then you have to organize the stuff you do want, decide where you're going to put it. And then you look and say, now, how would it work best? How should I do this house? Should I put this over here? That's what I'm doing with my papers, my journals, my archives, files from work I've done now. And and, um, putting things on computer and getting rid of the stuff that I don't need to see anymore. And focusing and saying, what's the story? Like if I was doing a biography on Lucy Arnaz, I got to look up, I got to look at her life objectively now and see what's, what jumps out at me. Cause there's a lot, like you just mentioned, that's a lot of stuff. My husband has just finished writing his memoirs. It literally has taken him and he wasn't the president of the United States, you know, or Gandhi. He, he's just an actor who grew up with a bizarre childhood and incredibly fortunate career also working with some amazing people. And he thought, I'm going to put this down so my kids will know. Well, it's taken him almost 10 years to focus and think and remember and edit and go back to it. And also he's been working on and off throughout that time. So it's me too. That's how it would work with me too, right? I'd be right in the middle of it. And then boom, I have to go out and get ready to do a show somewhere and disappear for three weeks. And so it takes the time that it takes, but yes, I, I do want to write about what I've learned in my life. And one of the things that stopped me from doing it all this time is that I thought, oh, people just want me to write a a story. It's like Lucy's version of her mother and her dad. I did that. You know, I I did the documentary and then I was in this documentary and I was involved in the making of that movie. And I've done that. Their story, there's not much more you can tell about that story that hasn't already been told. However, if I write my own autobiography, of course, I'm going to talk about my mom and my dad and where I was born and what I know about their past, like you would with anybody, you know, but it isn't going to be my story of their story. It's going to be my story. And if 11 people buy it, then that's just fine. You know, I can't write the book that they want me to write. And I'm not even know that that many people are saying they would want me to write it, but. Well, I think you already did. Well, you know, I'll I'll tell you why. I say that you were one of the very first celebrities that had a question and answer section on your website way, way, way back. Yes, you remember that? I remembered it and I submitted numerous questions, which you were very kind to answer. And I, I really wondered at the time, I thought, I hope Lucy keeps these questions and answers because there's a book there. I agree. I remember saying to Laura Johansson, who runs the website and still does actually to this day, I said, you know, we hope you're archiving all of these because really these are things that people want to know. And sometimes I thought, oh, that's just corny. Who cares? But I thought, no, actually, there's a much bigger answer there. And that's kind of interesting. And I would take the time and answer every single she'd send me like clumps of them once a month. And sometimes I would go like, oh, God, there's so many. But they were fun in a way to sit down. That's my homework every night. I would you know, remember and try to answer some of these. And it was fascinating to see the depth of what people were curious about. It wasn't just like, what's your favorite I Love Lucy episode, which if one more person asks me that, can I tell you? The answer is, I don't have one. So there are so many more interesting things to, to talk about. Well, I was the one that wrote you and asked, 
what was Gary Morton like as a stepfather? Because no one was ever asking you about him. So that was me. I apologize. But no, great question. I loved your answer. You answered, you said that he taught you a lot about culture. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And about music. I mean, I talk about my father's influence in my music world, but I also, once my mother married Gary, he loved music. He was a stand-up comic. And so most singers had a comic open their shows in those days, right? Sinatra, Lena Horne, Mel Torme, Sammy Davis Jr. And Gary opened for like all these people. So he had a great library collection of some of the best music ever. And so when I was home, I was upstairs listening to KFWB and KHJ and the top 40 of, you know, teeny bopper music and, and memorizing all of that. But then I go downstairs and Gary would be playing Rosemary Clooney and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And I listened to them and the music that they chose to sing and their vocals. And that's why I sing what I sing today. It's that combination. It's funny, isn't it? That it was my dad and then my stepfather that both had this enormous respect for music. I wouldn't say culture per se, like Gary was not a theater goer or art you know, connoisseur or galleries or anything like that. But he did, he did love and appreciate and understand great music and jazz, you know, stuff like that. You know, Lucy, considering the very unconventional life you've had and the immense public interest you've had to deal with surrounding your iconic parents, you've always seemed to me to be incredibly grounded and centered and very focused on what really matters in life. You've had a long, stable, happy marriage. You've handled your public profile with such grace and such class. How did you manage to stay so down to earth? It's a lot of different things. I had, as I said, people who I knew loved me. So I didn't have anything traumatic, I would say, in my childhood other than divorce and alcoholism, which is traumatic, but it's not the same as child abuse or murder or anything like that. I had a grandmother who was like salt of the earth, Didi Ball, my mother's mother, who spent a lot of time with us as kids and always sort of was just very pragmatic and responsible and get things done kind of thing. She, she just talked turkey and I loved that. She wasn't, she had no airs whatsoever. She didn't expect to be taken care of in any special way. She was just country, you know, she was just regular. And then as I grew up, I, I think I had some pretty good mentors. I gravitated towards people that were positive. Tommy Toon. Tommy Toon was always tranquilly Lucier, you know, be here now. He was into all of that. I used to call him the Maharishi Mushi Pork because when we were on tour together, he was so centered in yoga and all. And I saw I paid attention to that. As I got older, I ended up having a couple of really life-saving therapists who could take me down the road of whatever was angst at the time and pick out what it was coming from. Where did that come from? And help me get through that. I married a guy who had gone through such trauma in his life and had come to this place where he really was at peace and had tremendous compassion. He was a wonderful husband, is, and a wonderful father. And we found a couple of great therapists, family therapists in the last few years to help us with our kids. And to, but it's like, it's not a bad thing. You go, let's go to talk to somebody. Let's figure out what this is all about. And it's been life-saving. It has, people say, oh, you're just so grounded. And I go, well, <laughs> there's a reason for that. I mean, I work at it. You got to work at it. But you're very nurturing. You really, there's a healing quality about you. I don't know whether you really recognize that, but there is a real healing quality about you. 
when you sing, when you talk, mm. I've seen you speak. Uh, I was at one of your lectures. You have a healing quality about you. I hope you never forget that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I think that's great if that's true. I believe what we do in, in our business is, is a tonic. It is a medicine and laughter is a great medicine and entertainment is a wonderful battery charge and gives people a couple hours to just forget about all the crap, which seems to get heavier every single day in this world. It's really hard. And sometimes it's even hard for me to go out there and make fun and have fun and sing songs when 19 people have just been shot to death in a school, you know? So I feel like, well, at those times, I'm sort of like the USO show, right? It's the middle of war. You just watch your buddy get blown up. You stepped on a mine. And the next day, you know, Bob Hope's coming and he's going to make you laugh. Why? Because you have to, because you have to breathe. You have to get a battery charge. You got to go back in there. You got to get back in the trenches, kids. And, and life can be beautiful. And then it can be really hard, so hard. And I didn't become a doctor or a nurse, but I'm, I kind of appreciate good therapists. And I think that when it's done correctly, art can be therapy. And if I'm a part of that, then that makes me feel good. And I'm so grateful for that. Well, Ms. Lucy Arnaz, I must tell you that having you on our show has been a huge dream come true for me. I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me and our viewers. That is so kind, Harvey. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It really has. This was a delightful interview. You're so well prepared. I love that. Thank you so, so much. Our guest has been the incomparable Lucy Arnaz. My name is Harvey Brownstone. Thank you to our producer, Steve Silver. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for watching. Be sure to check out all the great interviews on the Harvey Brownstone Interviews YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when new videos are posted.